Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. This is Ryan Tripp on New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. We're here today with Professor Richard Watmore. He is Professor of Modern History and co-director of the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. Welcome to the show, Professor Watmore. It's very nice to be here. We're going to be discussing today Professor Watmore's new book published earlier this year by Princeton University Press, Terrorists, Anarchists, and Republicans, the Genevans and the Irish in Time of Revolution. So before we dive into the questions, let's talk a little bit about uh, cover selection. How did you uh, devise this striking cover for your book? Well, I did have uh, some input. In the 18th century, people communicate via political prints. They have arguments through prints. Printmakers are the people that you might employ if you're a politician to castigate an opponent. And it's also a source of comedy. And the cover of the book is actually a print, uh, one of a series of prints that represented the British Isles. And this one is obviously representing Ireland. And you would see the prints in shops, you might buy them, but you, the, the, the public would go round to the print shop and have a look in the window and get a bit of an, bit of an education and discuss the content of the prints. And that's why I used it really, partly, I suppose, in the hope of reviving a lost art form. Can you first elucidate the reasons for Genevan stability during the 18th century? And on a related note, why did factionalism and the Reformation rhetoric of terrorists and anarchists engulf Geneva in the late 18th century? It's been a difficult question to answer and it's one that obsessed contemporaries why Geneva which is seemingly the most stable state in Europe becomes a place of crisis now you've got to remember that lots of contemporaries in the previous century in the 17th century they thought the whole world had gone to the dogs I mean you take a historian today such as Jeffrey Parker he's argued that the 17th century sees a global crisis. Everywhere is unstable. There's war, religious war especially. Now, the place on earth that doesn't undergo a crisis in the 17th century is Geneva. Obviously, it is the Protestant Rome. It is seemingly immune to the turmoil of Europe. It has relative toleration and it's a a Protestant haven. Catholics are allowed to uh, stay overnight in Geneva only if they have permission. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very stable place. Now, why within 100 years, and in fact, after a short set of initial crises at the start of the 18th century, it seems to get worse and worse. And the sign of, it, of Geneva becoming unstable is large state intervention. 
So, and, and if you want a kind of a definition of when is a state in crisis, you could usually say it's when bigger states intervene. And in the case of Geneva, it's intervention either by the Swiss cantons, especially Bern or Zurich, which are the most powerful cantons, or by France, which is really the big brother. It's the most powerful state in Europe. It's the most significant state on Geneva's border. And the story of the 18th century really is, is ever more French intervention at times of crisis. Now, why does Geneva undergo crisis? The reasons are disputed, but what I focus on really is the crisis of small states and more particularly small republics. In previous work I've done, I've looked at lots of republics, but particularly Geneva. And in the 18th century, it is the republics that experience crisis. And they experience crisis because they don't know how to maintain themselves. The world has changed. It's become big states are much more obsessed with commerce. They're obsessed with eating up the markets of small states. So they no longer are happy to have a, a commercial entrepot on the borders, such as Geneva. They want to take Genevan markets. Now, why do big states all of a sudden want to eat up small states? The reason lies in the expensive nature of military technology. The world has militarily changed. It's undergone, undergone a military revolution. And in order to defend yourself, you didn't just need big armies. You also needed very expensive military technology. And the way that big states pay for it is obviously by generating commerce and then taxing the, the commercial activity. So there's a huge incentive to, for big states to create large markets. There's a turn to empire in the 18th century. Small states are increasingly in peril. The way that they maintained themselves in the past has been lost, and they are eaten up. I mean, more and more states disappear in the 18th century. Small states become an endangered species, and Geneva is a beautiful example of this process. Who were Paul-Claude Motot and Jacques-François Deluc, and how and why did the burning of the quote-unquote heretical Emile and contract social by Rousseau and the Council of 25's joint negatif spur the representant insurgency the 1765 Declaration Against Rousseau and 1768 Pacification. And as an offshoot question, was Geneva a republic, an aristocracy, an oligarchy, or all three? Um, Geneva's a republic, and it's an oligarchical republic, but it doesn't have an aristocracy. Of course, the magistrates who run Geneva tend to be from the same families. It's quite an interesting fact about the way that the 18th century looked at representation or elections, they always thought of elections as a way of ensuring aristocrats get elected the, or, or aristocrats get power. And the reason aristocrats get power via elections is because the people, who do they vote for, for? They always vote for the rich or the famous because they don't really know anybody else. So According to an 18th century mind, if you have elections, and the Genevans do have elections to, to magisterial positions, um, then you would very likely get an, arist an aristocracy. But they don't call themselves an aristocracy. They, they declare that they're ruling for the res publica, which is the public good, 
and they they the magistrates in Geneva claim that they're not aristocrats. But coming back to the to the main question about what happens in the crisis in the second half of the 18th century, which really most people would say kicks off with the burning of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile and social contract in June 1762. Now, uh, if people don't know about Rousseau, Rousseau, many would say, is the most famous philosopher of the 18th century. He writes books that are sensationally popular, uh, including books like Emile, uh, which appears in 1762 alongside the social contract. And these books were important for Genevan radicals because they had been working and persuading Rousseau to embrace their cause. And the Genevan radical cause was associated with a group called the Représentants. And two Représentants were Moultou and Deluc. And Moultou and Deluc were leaders of the Représentants in the 1750s and into the 1760s. And what they were arguing was that Geneva if it was going to solve its problems, the problem of its relative impotence as a state, especially relative to France, you had to have a popular revolution. A popular revolution against the corrupt, luxury-loving magistrates who'd run the state for a 100 years. They wanted to kick out the oligarchical families and really have a, what we would call a democratic revolution. Some of them did, some of the radical Representant did call themselves Democrats. That's quite rare in the 18th century, but they did think that they were creating a, a Republican democracy. And they persuade Rousseau to embrace their cause. Now, Rousseau, because he's a, he's a philosopher who doesn't really get on with many people and he usually falls out with people and he does fall out with the Representant. But Rousseau, for a period of time between really 1762 and 17, end of 1764, Rousseau supports the Représentant. And the reason they want him is because they know he's brilliant at attacking tyrants or identifying tyrants. And it's when Rousseau attacks the, the existing magistrates for being tyrants that all hell breaks loose. It becomes a, 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 a Europe-wide cause. Uh, making Geneva free again, battling this corrupt French aristocracy, which that's the accusation against the, the magistrates that they've become a, a French-loving aristocracy, that they're betraying the city of Ge Geneva, that they're selling out to France. And Rousseau is seen to be in the vanguard of the movement for democratic revolution. In practice, it's much more complicated because Rousseau was not a Democrat, and he did not believe in revolution. Um, some people who think Rousseau is the, is the founder or the author of the French Revolution uh, don't understand Rousseau. He's, he's not a revolutionary figure at all. But for a short period of time, he's willing to support the cause of the Représentant. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why his books are burned. Now, his books are burned for a very interesting reason. It's because they're accused of being solvents to morality and government. In other words, Rousseau's books destroy society and they destroy political institutions. So he's accused of being a radical political anarchist. And, and if you embrace his doctrines, 
civil order will be lost and you're likely to experience terror. And that's why the language of terrorism and anarchism, and you accuse Republicans of being terrorists and anarchists, that's why that kind of rhetoric explodes at Geneva because of its association, the movement's association with the very famous Rousseau, and because he himself was savaged by his critics, some of whom were legitimately afraid of his doctrines, and some of whom simply hated him and thought that he was he just was somebody who was too dangerous to allow them to publish their work and 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 allow it to be read. What was the ultimate focus of Voltaire's subsequent criticism of Rousseau? So Voltaire enters the story. Obviously, you can see that the story of the anarchists and terrorists at Geneva, it involves major European figures. So part of the book is concerned with people who are not very well known, Multu and Deluc, for example, the leaders of the représentants. But there are also figures, as I've said, Rousseau, but also Voltaire. Now, Voltaire thinks of himself as the French Shakespeare, but he has always been worried about his own books being banned in France because he, he is, he's, he's especially known as a critic of the Catholic Church and a critic of institutionalized religion. So he sets up home right on the border between Geneva and France, really so he can run away, if necessary, into neutral territory, and he feels safe. And he, there's lots of booksellers in Geneva. It's a place where you can have your work published. So Voltaire, with uh, his uh, life at Geneva, starts to become involved in, the, in local politics. He, always got a, he was always visited by dignitaries. And Voltaire is on a mission, and he calls the mission Enlightenment. And enlightenment for Voltaire means getting rid of Calvinism. He hates Calvinism. And the reason that he hates Calvinism is he thinks that the Reformation was a glorious movement of human freedom. But when the Genevans became free, getting rid of the bishop who used to rule them, the Catholic bishop who used to rule them, when they did that, they embraced Calvinism. And Voltaire said Calvinism was the religion of slaves because they became free and they ran into a monastery, the people of Geneva, and locked themselves up. So Voltaire hated Calvinism. Now, Rousseau, although he's not an orthodox Calvinist, he's always defended Protestantism. He considers himself, certainly at this period, he considers himself a loyal servant of the Genevan church. And Rousseau famously attacks Voltaire's protégé, D'Alembert, Jean D'Alembert, in, the, in a, a, a text of 1758 uh, called, it's really uh, about the theatre, the lettre uh, sous les spectacles. And it's, it's, it's an attack on D'Alembert's article in the Encyclopédie, an article on Geneva. And D'Alembert had said it would be a very good thing to have a theatre at Geneva and the pastors, the Genevan pastors, are becoming Socinians. So he was really accusing them, following his master Voltaire, of abandoning Calvinism and becoming supporters of the Voltaire Enlightenment. Now, Rousseau attacked that, 
And really, from that time on, Voltaire really detests Rousseau. That's probably an understatement. He, he absolutely hates the man. And when the magistrates turn against Rousseau in the 1760s, Voltaire is on hand to support them and to do everything that he possibly can to ruin uh, Rousseau's life. I mean, some people would go so far to say that it's Voltaire's attack on Rousseau that sends him, um, sends Rousseau mad. For the rest of his life, he's, he's not really stable. And what Voltaire does is he reveals to the world that Rousseau abandoned his own children. Now, given that Rousseau has, has, is the author of the most popular book of child education in the 18th century, Emile, to discover that this author was a hypocrite because he didn't bring up his own children and had left five of them on the steps of a foundling hospital in Paris, it's absolutely devastating. And when Voltaire reveals that to the world, Rousseau is, is, uh, is ruined, really. Certainly, he thinks his reputation has been, has been ruined. So Voltaire is someone who does not support the représentant, who hates Rousseau, and who likes the fact that Geneva is becoming more commercial, there are more luxuries, and he thinks that they ought to cease to be Calvinists and they ought to build a theatre. And one of the uh, very funny things that Voltaire does is he builds his own theatre just into France on the, on the French Genevan border, and he invites all of the pastors and Genevan magist magistrates. He tries to corrupt them by inviting them to come to the theatre. During the 1770s, who were the young leaders of the Représentant and Negatif factions? And how had Genevan electoral politics changed after the 1768 peace settlement? In the 1760s, there's a popular rebellion. Uh, the people really come out and, and, and try and fight for, for Rousseau. They use him as, a, as an icon even though Rousseau himself says to them, he renounces his own citizenship as a Genevan, Rousseau does, and he says to them, don't fight because you're ultimately going to be defeated by the French. And if you rebel, you'll be crushed. But there was a peace settlement in 1768. And it's a peace settlement, which is a bit like the settlement of the 1730s, because there was also popular rebellion in the 1730s. And it was settled by inviting negotiators from the cantons and from France to talk to the magistrates, to talk to the représentant, and to come up with a peace plan. Now, the leaders of the représentant in the 1760s were still the older watchmaker Jean-André uh, uh, Deluc, who is... Uh, has been a, a major figure in the représentant movement for a, a long time. And it, he and his, uh, his friends in the représentant movement, people like Etienne Clavier, they are responsible for the settlement. And actually, it, 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 there's a tinkering with the electoral process. The battle really in Geneva is about who controls election to the magisterial positions. And the, uh, the, the magistrates give a little, the représentants give a little, 
The French threaten everybody with with military might, and there is there's a compromise. Now, the party who are known as the Negatif, the Negatif are the party of the magistrates, and they are opposed to the représentants. They are opposed to the représentants because they accuse them of being radical enemies of commerce, enemies of luxury, so enemies of a wealthy Geneva, enemies of France, and therefore mad, given that, that France is a, is a, is a super uh, powerful uh, state. And they organize themselves really to limit représentant power. And they are very unhappy because they think that too much ground was given in 1768, that the peace settlement uh, was, was unfair to them, unfair to the, to, the, to the existing magistrates. So the 1770s is really the story of war breaking out again. It breaks out again, but the negatif are much more organized. They, they use funds from uh, Versailles. Um, so the French authorities are very worried about the représentant causing more trouble, and they organize a propaganda campaign. They blacken the names of the of the leaders of the um, of the représentant, and gradually there's a crisis which is over the formulation of a new law code, because the représentant say if we're going to have a new Geneva, a better Geneva, a virtuous Geneva, a more Calvinist Geneva, then we need a new law code. The negatif say, well, we agreed to have a new law code in 1768, but we don't want to go ahead with it because we're not in charge of the process. And really, it's the refusal of the negatif to accept the proposals for the reform of law by the représentant that really leads to violence. Um, it's, it's an even more complicated story because there is a third group who are called the Natif, who are people who were not born in Geneva, but who acquire some version of political rights. And they're also involved and they're supported by Voltaire. But the main, the, the simple version of the story is that it's an argument about how do you reform a republic? How do you keep a republic stable? There are two different perspectives. One, stay close to France. The other, assert our Calvinist independence and have a popular revolution. These two versions clash and over the particular issue of the law code. How did the young representant in particular depict themselves, and I thought this was interesting, as moderate champions of compromise, but also defenders of Genevan autonomy? And what about critics of French policy, such as Jacques-Antoine de Vauvaret? So um, the representant after their experience of, of 1768, but uh, even earlier than that, I, I, I think they'd realized, because they've been battling since the 1730s, they realized that they, it's very important for them to portray themselves as moderates. And their enemies are forever saying, well, they're Democrats and they're violent Republicans and because they're supporters of Rousseau, their ideas are going to destroy the state. So they're really, really dangerous. They're terrorists and they're anarchists. 
Now, their response to it is always, well, we're moderates. Look, we're always willing to compromise. And the, the thing that they say time after time is, we did compromise in 1768. And because we're willing to compromise, it shows we're not the fanatics, we're not the dangerous revolutionaries um, that uh, our critics accuse us of being. Now, there's a new generation of représentant leaders. One is, is somebody who was prominent in the 1760s. I've already mentioned him. He's a merchant, and he's called Etienne Clavier. One of the ways of thinking about Clavier is to think of him as a George Soros of the, of the 18th century. He's very, very successful. He's got lots of money, but he's absolutely committed, especially to Republican reform. He wants to save small states for the world because he thinks that the small states are perpetually in crisis. As, as I've said before, they're being eaten up by large states. And Clavier's mission in life is to save Geneva, to keep it an independent state, and to use his money, use his, uh, his, his own wealth to combat the magistrates and to uh, prevent the French from taking over uh, his homeland. Now, he has uh, friends because he wasn't a particularly good uh, writer, Clavier, and lots of his friends would uh, say that he has the brilliant political strategic ideas, but he needs orators and he needs writers to expre express them. And one of the figures, the main figures who uh, works very closely with Clavier and is a leader of the représentant in the 1770s and into the 1780s is, as you've said, Jacques-Antoine Durovaret. And Durovaret is a lawyer, and he is a brilliant orator and he gets into politics and he's elected procureur general. And the procureur general, the best way of thinking about that in the Genevan context, it's really a, um, a person who represents the people. Um, he is someone who you could go to if you have grievances about politics or about life. And the idea is he will represent your grievances to the magistrates. Now, having a leading representant in, in the position of procureur general is wonderful for them. And uh, Durovere becomes the mouthpiece of opposition to France. And again, he's, part, he's a brilliant orator. And actually, some of his writings, uh, they're still uh, worth reading you can see their rhetorical power and he takes radical decisions politically because he decides to begin to name the elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is France French intervention and involvement in Genevan political life and that is a scandal for Calvinists because they see a Catholic power interfering in in domestic affairs they hate it and Durovere thinks the best strategy, it's a very, very radical strategy, is not to try and make friends with the French. It's to, to say there is a conspiracy going on to undermine the state. Geneva is losing its sovereignty, and it's losing its sovereignty because the magistrates are working with the French government to take away popular liberties, and they're destroying Calvinism. So that's what Durovere uh, argues in the 1770s and into the 1780s. What role did economic disparities and, and Moravianism, as well as relative interpretations of Adam Smith's contentions, play in young representant ideas, particularly for the inevitability of Genevan civil discord? 
So uh, I've mentioned Etienne Clavier, and he, as a leader of the Représentant, has a, a mother who is quite prominent in Genevan society, and she's a Moravian. And the Moravians are very pious, and they believe that there is a direct relationship between the individual and God, and you need to show your love of God and by ceaseless uh, prayer, for example, and by living a very pious life. Now, traditionally, lots of historians have recognized that there's a link between the attack on luxury and the attack on commercial society in the 18th century and pietism. So often political radicals who reject commerce are falling back on an old Christian critique of luxury, for example. So they're saying that um, the, the, the Christianity is, inc- if you're a Christian, you can't really be a Uh, a merchant dedicated to selfishness and just the pursuit of greed. Now, Clavier does uh, accept that argument, despite the fact that he himself is a super rich uh, merchant and involved in all sorts of uh, all sorts of schemes uh, to make large profits. And it's one of the the interesting facts, especially about Genevan life that often people would espouse a doctrine that is critical of commerce and luxury while themselves being rich. And in Clavier's case, he would say, well, I'm always giving my money to the poor. And actually, I aim to create a society where there won't be so many people like me. There will be a society where there's moderate wealth. That is the goal. It was really the goal of the pietists, and it's the goal of somebody like Clavier a world of moderate wealth, any society where you've got extreme inequalities, the representant argue it's doomed. That's what's happened to Geneva. That's why you've got such intense discord. It's because there's too many rich people who are controlling the political system. Now we come to Adam Smith. And the use of Adam Smith is interesting because Adam Smith writes The Wealth of Nations uh, in 1776. And traditionally, Adam Smith is associated with... um, for us, obviously, today, he's associated with right-wing um, economics with a neoliberal agenda. But the fascinating thing about the contemporary Adam Smith, although he was a political moderate, he thought that his book was a, a, the greatest attack ever launched on Brit- Britain's commercial system, as he called it. He called it a mercantile system. And he said that the terrible thing about the mercantile system was a corrupt nexus of merchants, bankers, and politicians who were running the state. And they ran the Britain, the British Empire, for their own benefit, for their own profit, rather than as they should have done for the public good for everybody. Now, radical Republicans, Thomas Paine's another example, obviously in the North American context, but radical Republicans in Geneva, they saw Smith's text and they thought, this is the greatest attack on commercial society that we have because it identifies a corrupt mercantile system and Geneva, in its relationship with France, has become a mercantile system. And therefore, Smith is our inspiration. He's inspired us. He's given us the political language and the tools 
to combat our enemies and identify them as corrupt enemies to true commerce, true commerce where you have wealth spreading for the good of everybody. So on that note, what political and socioeconomic factors precluded peace? And addressing your earlier comment, how did the representants incorporate the natifs into their insurgency as true constitutionnels and proponents of the edict of 1781? So the fact is that at Geneva, there's a there's a division between rich and poor. Um, and the poor are a group that are really excluded from society, although from political society, so they, they don't have the right to elect magistrates, for example, or to vote in magisterial elections. And they are called the Natif, and I mentioned them there before. They're people who were not born in Geneva, but they their families might have moved to Geneva. And they're often traders, and they themselves become organized when the representants themselves demand more political rights, more political power, the Nati follow them, and the two are often work in conjunction with one another, although there is a branch of the Nati that works with the magistrates. So, and uh, again, uh, it's, it's a bit like you could say there's a, there's a, uh, it has contemporary resonances. So if you are an ordinary working person, man or woman, do you support the rich who say, oh, but we're going to make you richer, you just have to wait, wealth trickles down? Or do you trust the person just a bit above you who says, we need to take the money from the rich and spread it between everybody? And the Natif are split. And they're split, but they're, they are more, at the beginning of the 1780s, they're more on the side of the representant because of the Edict of 1781. And the Edict of 1781 is a law that says that a, a sizable proportion of Natif each year can improve their civic status. So they can, you've got to remember, one of the things about Republican states uh, is that they're not egalitarian. It's another. It's a myth about republican politics in the 18th century. Genevan society is very hierarchical. You have full citizens who have full political and economic rights. Then you have bourgeois. A bourgeois is somebody who had partial uh, political rights. And then you have groups like the, the Natif who are largely excluded from politics, although they have some um, uh, economic rights to trade, and then there are uh, are further groups below that I that I won't talk about. So there's a, a battle going on for political for to have a political voice, and the natif and the representant get together and they say gradually we're going to. I suppose you could say expand the electorate. The magistrates oppose it, so the negatif in the 1780s they try and stop the natif and the representant from taking more of a control over the political system. And the political system, Geneva is divided into separate councils, uh, and it's who controls the councils and who controls the magistracies, the election to the, to the leading magisterial positions. Now, the clever thing that the negative do is they rebrand themselves in the 1780s. So 
in the 1760s and 1770s, they've, they've called themselves negatif. And they thought that was too ugly a name, you know, being a negative to everything, it's not good. So they call themselves constitutionnaires. And the constitutionnaires are defenders of the existing constitution. And they begin to portray the natif and the représentant as enemies of traditional Geneva, of supporters of an anarchy, an anarchistic destruction of existing political structures. That's, and that's uh, why there's one of the, the area of the law code that sees the most battle is the Edict of 1781. Now, one of the facts for the Constitutionnaire, the former negatif, is that they're, they're supported closely by the French foreign minister. And the French foreign minister is called the Comte de Vergen. And Vergen hates the représentant. Why he hates them so much is a difficult question to answer. It's mainly because he's very afraid of popular rebels of, uh, he doesn't want democratic republicans on the borders of Geneva. He thinks they're dangerous. He probably wants to incorporate Geneva into France. He's an empire builder. He's an enemy of Britain. Obviously, he's supported uh, liberty in North America, but he doesn't want liberty to spread to the little republics of Europe. And he works hand in glove ever closer with the the constitutionnaires against the représentant and the natif. What were the proximate causes of the 1782 coup in Geneva? And what were représentant plans for the new government addressing like women and sumptuary laws? And what happened during, during and after French annexation, including représentant so-called cowardice? So, um, you can see that in this story that I'm that I'm that we're going through, there are there's a background of an intense battle idea of ideas, which is really to do with can you keep republics alive? What political system is is best suited to keeping a republic alive? What economy should you have to maintain your republic? And the battle becomes violent because the parties reject the other's position. So the, the représentant in the 1780s and the natif who support them, they say, we want a broader, more popular, a more democratic political system. We want to spread wealth. We, we believe that we're defending Calvinism. And the French-supported constitutionnaire stroke negatif respond, you're dangerous enemies of... Uh, the existing constitution, uh, we think you're so dangerous, we're going to stop you from passing new laws. So the magistrates simply refuse to ratify the edicts that the representant and the natif are passing. So the battle spreads to the streets, and it spreads to the streets in April 1782. And one of the interesting facts about the représentant is that they don't want revolution. I've said before that they think of themselves as moderate and they always think it's possible to compromise. And they think when you have political violence, extreme things can happen. So you can have a terrible situation uh, occurring if you're not very, very careful. But it's groups of natif who 
suddenly become convinced by a rumour that the magistrates are going to attack the people. That's often how popular revolutions start, uh, especially in, in Europe. There's a rumour going around of a terrible, ac- terrible action, a terrible injustice, and there's a call to arms. And that's what happens in April 1782. And it's, really, it's not really a coup. It's a popular uprising. And it's a popular uprising that establishes a government. And what the representants who are now in power, because they themselves decide once the revolution started, they might as well take control of it. You know, they're very worried about demagogues or natif uh, from, from taking control. So they themselves take control and they lock up the magistrates in their houses. Um, they put a couple of them in the uh, in prison. They let lots and lots of the magistrates and their families leave, but they declare themselves the true representatives of the people, and they start to pass new laws. And these laws include uh, new sumptuary laws. And a sumptuary law is a law against luxury, so it 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 includes laws about. Uh, how much fine lace you're allowed on a on a coat or a dress? How many horses you might have in a on a, on a coach? Uh, you are controlling or preventing luxuries from corrupting the people. You're making people have lives that are similar to one another. And. There's also a radical proposals for a new constitution, which is really the, the representants say, well, we're only putting into practice the plan of 1768, the compromise of 1768, which the negative stroke constitutionnaires themselves rejected. And the representants know that it's going to be difficult to persuade the powers surrounding them not to intervene. And that is their great worry. And they send ambassadors, representant ambassadors everywhere. Every capital city in Europe gets a representant saying to the to the diplomats, please protect us, please protect us. They do send uh, Clavier and Durovere go to Versailles to plead for French support, because they say Geneva will be more prosperous if you support us. Things will be a lot better. It'll be more stable. But Vergen will hear nothing. And he organizes an invasion force. And he uses French power to persuade the other powers in the region, which are Savoy, the, the monarchy of Savoy, which always claimed that it should own Geneva, and the canton, the most important canton of Bern. And there's an invasion force uh, by the Bernese, the Savoyard and the French. 12,000 troops get to the gates of Geneva and they threaten the representants who are inside the walls that they're going to uh, attack and level the place. And of course, they've got remarkable cannon and mortars, and they erect them, funnily enough, on Voltaire's land just outside the city. Within the city, the representants say, well, we're going to fight. And this is where women and children are concerned, because women and children embrace the patriotic Republican rhetoric of being willing to die for the state. And they themselves, during the two-month 
period before the armies arrive. They rebuild the city walls. They smash some of the bridges. So there's it's hard to get into Geneva. Obviously, Geneva is on on the lake, and there are um, there are uh, bridges um, that uh, control access to the city. And the Genevans themselves, all of the people, including the representant, they're willing to die. And they think that there's going to be a glorious Republican martyrdom that's going to show the world how dangerous it is if you are a Republican and how impossible it is to live if you're if you happen to live in a small republic. So all small republics are doomed and the Calvinist Republic of Geneva is about to explode. Now, what do they do? They put gunpowder in the houses of the magistrates and they put gunpowder in the Cathedral of St. Peter. So one of the most famous cathedrals on earth is going to explode. And that too will be a sign of how terrible things have become for small state Republicans. Now, something very peculiar then happens that I that I talk about in the book, and that is that the leaders of the représentants, even though everybody supports them, it's really a united movement, they decide to run away. They decide to run away, they say, because they don't want women and children to die. They don't want a Republican martyrdom. They don't think it's worth it for the for Geneva to explode and to be wiped off the face of the earth. So at the at the beginning um, of July 1782, overnight, the leaders Clavier du Roveray, Francois Divenois are the main figures. They leave Geneva, they escape by boat, they let the magistrates free, and apparently some people went to sleep in Geneva as supporters of the Representant, thinking that they were going to wake up, have a battle and die gloriously as Republican martyrs, and they woke up to find the city gates open and already the the enemy troops were coming in. And some people commit suicide and lots of people attack the représentant and the leaders of the représentant and say that they were cowards. And they, because rather than being Republican martyrs, they left the city. And that, and when the French go in, they don't annex to Geneva, but they just leave. They're the major force in the city. Geneva is divided into areas controlled by troops from France, from Savoy and from Bern. So it becomes a military camp. Uh, there's a crackdown on, on popular, on, on, on any activity by the people. Civil liberties are lost. There's a new constitution that completely supports the old magistrates. They come back in and everybody accepts that they're now supported by French bayonets. But the people are very, very critical of the representants who they think have run away. Why were representant refugees associated with industry? And on a related note, and then moving into Ireland and Great Britain, how and why did British Protestant magistrates recruit Genevan representant refugees and even Genevan denizens for a new Geneva in the so-called barbarous Ireland? And why did the representant even opt for Ireland? So one of the things that I've been interested in uh, for a long time is really what happens to the leaders of the Genevan Revolution of 1782, the representant that I've talked about. 
what happens to them when they left the city. And you have to remember that they're leaders really of a large party of watchmakers. And although they're initially called cowards, there are still lots of representants within Geneva who hate the crackdown. They hate the fact that the magistrates are back in control. They think Geneva's sovereignty has been lost. And they go back actually to the advice of Rousseau. And Rousseau said that if you lose your freedom and you can no longer enjoy liberty in one place, then why don't you recreate it somewhere else? So the Genevans become an attractive uh, proposition. They become an attractive proposition for um, the monarchs of Europe who all want the watchmakers to come and set up new communities in their own realms so that there are lots of offers to the Genevan representants. And during the period after they run away, very, very quickly, they get offers from all over the place, right across the German states, um, from the, the, the uh, Holy Roman Empire and further afield. People say, bring your wealth, bring your expert artisans. Now, you've got to remember that they're looking back towards the expulsion of the Huguenots from France by Louis XIV. At, uh, in in the 1680s. And that had, you know, some people think that caused the Industrial Revolution in, in England, for example, because the, the the brilliant, remarkable artisans brought their wealth from France to, to England. Now, monarchs across Europe think, well, the same thing might happen if there's a Genevan exodus. And the, the representants do have close links with Britain, Many of them have sold their goods in Britain. They know that Britain's a, a, a wonderful uh, market. And they decide to make a pitch. And some of the uh, um, prominent British ministers are friends of the representant. So the person who does the negotiating is the, a lawyer who's friends with Clavier and Durovere, who's called Francois Divenois. And Divenois very quickly goes to London and he meets the person who's become the prime minister, who's called Lord Shelburne. And Lord Shelburne is famous in history, although he was prime minister for a short period of time, because he signed the, the treaty that created North America as an independent state. He put an end to the war. He accepted the independence of, of North America. He was kicked out of office because of it, because the British parliamentarians weren't happy. But uh, that's one of his great achievements. Another of his achievements is the creation of New Geneva, because Shelburne himself, Lord Shelburne, was born in Ireland, and he thinks that Ireland has suffered by English neglect. It's not been allowed to develop economically. There's an enormous amount of potential. It's got wonderful harbours, and it's, got, it's in a perfect position in terms of international trade. Labour is very cheap. And he himself, on his own estates, encourages projects, projects for commerce across Ireland. And he sees the Genevans with all of their watchmaking capacities. And he says, come to Ireland. I'll give you a grant. 
I'll give you land. Now, the Genevans have, an, have a debate uh, amongst themselves about where they should go. And they decide on Ireland partly because they think that it's separate from Britain and they think if there's a crisis in Britain, because Britain is in crisis at this time, then Ireland will probably be safe. But they think it's somewhere where there's an enormous amount of economic potential. They accept that. And also, they choose Waterford in Ireland, just outside Waterford, because it's got a wonderful harbour. <coughs> Excuse me. So international trade is, is going to be very easy. And it even looks a little bit like Geneva in terms of its setup and the waterways that surround it. So you've answered a couple of my next questions. Uh, let's move on to uh, why min uh, many of the Genevan refugees instead settled in Constance. And why did various figures blame the failure of New Geneva on either representant republicanism Irish corruption and or British politics. So New Geneva initially works. It's the case that a lot of money is uh, is uh, spread about and there are new buildings. Um, the new town of New Geneva is planned uh, just outside Waterford at a place called Passage East. And the Royal Navy is used to transport some of the Genevan families. And it's likely that about 100 families arrive initially. And from the Genevan perspective, they have fully embraced the project. And proof that they fully embraced it is really in the fact that they abandon their Genevan citizenship and they become British subjects. And they become British subjects who live in Ireland at Dublin um, in 1783. And quite a lot of the representants do that. So they consider themselves no longer to be Genevans. They've become Irish. They think that they really can destroy old Geneva by creating new Geneva, by moving all the watchmakers. And the first step is, to, is housing is to get nice houses for all the artisans. But, as you uh, have said, it, it doesn't go uh, to plan. And it doesn't go to plan really because of Shelburne's fall from power. When he ceases, in fact, I mean, you could say that if you wanted to, that the thing that destroys uh, uh, New Geneva is the American Revolution because what gets Shelburne kicked out of office is signing the peace uh, with the new North American republics. And once he's kicked out, there's no longer such direct support right from the top for, for New Geneva. And the next governments in Britain really are in crisis. They're worried that there might be an American-style revolution in Ireland um, there are there are uh, movements, rebellious movements in Ireland that are um, that are occurring at the time, and politicians in Ireland who'd been heavily involved in New Geneva, British politicians in Ireland, they really delegate the building of the city to local figures in Waterford, and there's the most prominent family in Waterford are the. Beresfords, the Dullapur Beresfords, and they 
organize for the building of New Geneva, but they do it extremely slowly. And the story of New Geneva as a watchmaking colony is of gradual frustration. And unfortunately, a lot of the correspondence has survived. And in the book, I, I give extracts from lots of the, the letters from Clavier, especially, who is so committed. He's thrown all of his, his, his fortune into New Geneva. And he's writing to British politicians saying, why has the city not been erected? Why is New Geneva not going forward? I'm waiting for people to do something and I don't know where the blockage is. And the blockage was definitely on the Irish side. And it's, it's a, it's, it's very, very frustrating for the Genevans or the, the former Genevans. The person that they gradually realize is, is the source of the problem is a man called James Cuff. He's a close friend of the, of the Beresfords, and he is given direct responsibility for building New Geneva. But you've got all of these families arriving who want to set up a watchmaking uh, industries, and there's nowhere for them to live. Uh, there's nowhere for them to uh, undertake their commerce, and they petition Cuff, and Cuff comes up with excuse after excuse. Now, the Genevans have a, a, a second proposal, and the second proposal is that they will move the Genevan Academy, which is really one of the great universities of Europe. They will move it to Waterford because lots of the professors at the Genevan Academy are supporters of the Representant. They will move it to Europe, and that will draw more and more Genevans. And once the Genevans are in Waterford, then New Geneva, it, it can't be stopped. But the British politicians and the local Irish politicians reject that. They say, no. The original plan was for a watchmaking colony. It was not for a new, for moving the Academy of Geneva. We're not going to accept it. Of course, the people who ultimately say no, again, are working very, very closely with Cuff and with the Beresfords. And so ultimately, why did Cuff construct New Geneva as a barracks, uh, particularly in 1785? And what about Thomas Ord's 1787 plan to establish New Geneva as a site for an Irish educational institution? So when the, the Genevans themselves are getting increasingly frustrated, there is, a, there is an option for them. And the option is to go to other places where there are now communities of refugees and a lot of them simply leave uh, Waterford and they go to, to places like Constance, where there's a, a, a very a thriving watchmaking industry, where there are lots of, there's a Calvinist community, there are lots of churches. And that means once the Genevans abandon New Geneva, you're left with a partially constructed uh, town and there's a there's a battle really for the money that has been invested and i suppose it's the story of all public contracts if there are opportunities to divert the money you know the politicians have said okay we want this money spent and then the genevans have gone so it's not going to be spent on new geneva so what do we do with it 
the Irish local politicians say, oh, well, we've got to finish. We've got to finish the building. And to a certain extent, that is that is what they do. Now, it so happens that James Cuff, the local Irish politician, he was head of the barracks board. And he's he's really in charge of all the barracks in Ireland. And you've got to remember that because the British feel that they're under threat in Ireland, that there might be rebellion in Ireland, they move lots of troops into Ireland, especially after the end of the, the war with uh, North America and with France and the Dutch and Spain. So once that war's over, Ireland is still quite rebellious. So they move troops over there. So there's a demand for barracks. So the fact that New Geneva becomes New Geneva Barracks in 1785, it's, it's highly logical. Um, but it doesn't happen straightforwardly. Nothing in the story of, uh, uh, of uh, 18th century Genevans is straightforward because a politician called Thomas Ord, who was, who was heavily involved with the New Genevans, and he came, to, he came to be friends with lots of the representants, and he thought, well, I don't want it to become a barrack. So he attempts in 1787 to create a, uh, an educational institution that would be revolutionary in that it would take young people, uh, children, up to uh, young adults, and it would teach them crafts, it would teach them practical subjects to turn them into artisans. Again, Ord uh, makes a plea for the use of the monies, but he too, as it happens to so many British-based politicians, you know, as Ord was, Ord sent over to Ireland, uh, he can't outmaneuver the Irish politicians. The Irish politicians, the members of what's called the Protestant Ascendancy, the Protestants who dominate Catholic Ireland, they control the land, they have such local power, and it's the Cuffs and the Beresfords who outmaneuver Ord in 1787 and his plan, just like the, the watchmaking plan for New Geneva, it fails as well. The background is really a worry about the volunteer movement, the patriot movement, the popular movements in Ireland that are saying perhaps Ireland should follow North America and become an independent state. Uh, the volunteers were, were, were militia who originally had uh, volunteered to fight in case the French invaded, but were now saying, actually, we want more power for ourselves. And in the historiography, some people have said, oh, well, Perhaps they got their ideas, the volunteers, from the radical Republicans, from the Genevans, but that's not true at all. The Genevans were actually very moderate, and although they themselves did embrace the volunteer companies, they're, they're, they're welcomed into the volunteer companies, and they, they supported uh, more power to, to Ireland, they, uh, the, the Irish are perfectly capable of, of rebelling themselves. Now, how did the French Revolution and Republic facilitate the formation of and shape British Protestant perspectives on the society of United Irishmen? Further, what Republican ideas vis-a-vis -vis commercial society did United Irishmen advance during the 1798 rebellion? And why did later 19th century intellectuals come to focus on British imperial persistence rather than the French Revolution? 
the volunteer movement in Ireland that I've mentioned before is radicalized by the French Revolution. I mean, the world is radicalized by the French Revolution. The idea of Europe's greatest monarchy turning itself into a into a republic and saying, oh, it'll spread liberty everywhere across the globe. Lots of people are attracted to it. Obviously, bliss it was at that dawn to be alive and to be young was very heaven. That's what Wordsworth said about the French Revolution. And I think it's a it's apt because you could see the Irish saying, oh, we too can become free. Now, the United Irishmen, initially, they're not Republicans, but under through contact with the French, they become Republicans and they really become re Republicans because they know that if you're going to have a revolution in Ireland, you have to have the support of France. It shows how much turbulence there is in the 18th century. Obviously, the Genevans, if they thought there was one state on earth that is an enemy to republics, it's France. For the Irish, by the 1790s, the one state that is supportive of republics and is super powerful is France. So Britain becomes the enemy, just as before for the, for the Genevans, Britain had been the saviour of republics. Now it's the enemy of republics because it's fighting Republican France. And war breaks out between France and Britain in 1793, and it goes on really until, until 1815. So the United Irishmen have various perspectives on commercial society. They, too, really are in favour of moderate wealth. I mean, in, in the mid-1790s, they, too, use Adam Smith's rhetoric against the mercantile system. They present Britain as a corrupt state, and they have a vision of a, of a reformed society politically that becomes more democratic, but also the reform of the economic system that's going to be moralized and wealth is going to be spread, etc. Now, in 1798, that's the year where the Irish take up arms and they attempt to, to have a full revolution, French style, against the British. Now, it fails. And really, one of the reasons it fails is because the French don't turn up and support them. All revolutions, again, think of the, uh, the American Revolution, all revolutions, you have to have big powers supporting you. The American Revolution would never have occurred if it hadn't had the support of the French. And the Irish needed French troops to invade. So ultimately, the United Irishmen are crushed in 1798. Later 19th century intellectuals, a lot of them support union rather than revolution as a solution to the problems of Ireland. And they do it really because the French Revolution failed. It's something that you have to remind yourself of. Uh, the American Revolution in, in some ways succeeded, although the founding fathers hated empire and they hated large-scale commerce. They would have hated America becoming a mercantile system. But in the, in the French case, France is unstable. And ultimately, certainly by the time Bonaparte comes to power, everybody accepts that the revolution has failed. So there has to be an alternative way of reforming. And union with Britain, the Irish-British Union, which occurs in 1800 to 1801, is seen as a way of reforming Ireland. Because if you remember, the union between England, Wales and Scotland has occurred in 1707. And Scotland has succeeded economically. It's become a 
It's become famous for its culture, for its universities, for its separate laws. It's had economic development. The Scots are everywhere. They've thrived through union. And the great hope of 19th century Ireland is that Ireland will similarly thrive like Scotland. The big problem in the Irish case is that the British do not grant Catholic emancipation. So Catholics are still not free. They're not, they don't have the civil same rights as, as Protestants. Whereas in the Scottish case, every Scot is a full member of the British polity. They're all, they're all equal subjects. Because that doesn't happen in Ireland, I think Irish history is, uh, has, been, has been very, very different. So getting to the end point of your story here, how and why did New Geneva Barracks become a prison, an execution site for United Irishmen, particularly those from County Wexford? What were conditions like in the prison? And are there any traces of the prison uh, today? There are traces. Really, they're very. you would never identify it as a prison today. There's a plaque at the site which, which says that that lots of United Irishmen were massacred at the site of the prison. And the reason that Geneva Barracks becomes a prison really is because of, of, of the nature of the rebellion in 1798. There are, there's a rebellion, one of the centres of the rebellion is in Wexford, which is uh, 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 relatively close to Waterford. So as the battles go on and as there are prisoners who are taken it's easy to move them to a place where where there are big walls and and a place that has big walls because it's a barracks and uh, was New Geneva. So the decision is taken to turn it into a prison. And because it's not been built as a prison, conditions are are really deplorable. And also because of the the hatred of the of the uh, of many of the of the people who are who are in control of the the prison their hatred for the rebels you know they think of the rebels as as people who are attempting to turn protestant ireland into a catholic state that they, they accuse the rebels of trying to turn it into turn ireland into france they accuse them of being extreme revolutionaries who would who are, are terrorists because they they massacre the people, they murder the people, and then the United Irishmen themselves are therefore executed in large numbers at Geneva uh, barracks. And conditions, I mean, there are there are accounts of some people who survived of of it being just about the worst place on earth that you could find yourself to be imprisoned. Um, there's uh, there is there's disease. And there are people uh, cramped in dreadful conditions without uh, proper uh, food and water and who are obviously brutally treated and who are also executed. There's a, there's a long, there are folkloristic tales of, of lots of the occurrences and, and a, a lots of examples of terrible brutality towards men who were imprisoned, but also to women visitors. There were claims that women who visited their their relations were sometimes stripped naked and some of them died. There's one case, the claim is that they they died of shame. And um, James Joyce obviously mentions New Geneva Barracks, the prisoner, uh, the prison for the United Irishmen in, in Ulysses. 
where he mentions the croppy boy. Obviously, the croppy boy is the rebel. That's what they called the United Irishmen as rebels. And he mentioned him being in Geneva Barracks. And it's a reference to a song called The Croppy Boy by Carol Malone. And it describes the death of a United Irishman in Geneva Barracks. And it's really the the story becomes one. and, And Geneva Barracks is associated with terrible practices. Uh, it's it's really uh, known locally as an awful place. And that's probably why ultimately the British, who obviously are still contro- in control of Ireland, they allow it to become a ruin. They, they allow the, the stone to be taken and the buildings to be leveled. And uh, visitors in the 1830s and then in the early 20th century could find very little left. Some of them still had plans of the prison and tried to tried to mark it out, but they, they couldn't really find anything. And today, all you really have is a plaque saying what happened at the end of the story. But what I've tried to do in the book is tell the whole story of New Geneva, of how uh, uh, a utopia for Republicans became a place where they died. So I have a final question. What's going on with you next? Are there any projects that you're currently working on that you can disclose? Uh, yes, I've actually, uh, I after finishing this book, I, I did some lectures at Oxford uh, called the Carlisle Lectures. And the theme was the end of enlightenment because uh, I think that the new Geneva story is part of a, a broader story about people in the 18th century rather than being believers in progress they all see crisis everywhere around them and they believe that enlightenment failed and that there was an end of enlightenment and that the french revolution really is a product of the end of enlightenment so actually i'm almost finished the book uh, which has the title the end of enlightenment and i hope it'll be published uh ideally this time next year if i if i manage to finish it in the next in the next month or so we hope you remember new books in history for that particular project. I certainly will. It's a. Uh, it's uh, the questions have just been. It's have been fantastic, and uh, it's been a. It's been a real pleasure uh, to do something like this. Ditto. So the book is Terrorists, Anarchists, and Republicans: The Genevans and the Irish in Time of Revolution, published earlier this year by Princeton University Press. On behalf of Professor Richard Watmore and the New Books Network, this uh, has been a production of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. For all of you listeners, please tune in next time.